Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today in Grasmere with author, illustrator, walker and, as it turns out, Father Christmas impersonator, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Impersonator? I'm the real one, you know. What were you doing last night, Mark? Well, late afternoon yesterday, I had a whole primary school of dedicated Santa hunters. (laughs) Lots of youngsters who really were captivated by the idea that it was Christmas. And I gather I did it all right. I... I enjoy being dressed up, and I just love being hearty. Very good. So you were dressed up in your um, a big white beard and um, a, a paunch, I believe. You had an artificial paunch. Yes, I am so chuffed to realise that I have to put some extension on to make myself look portly. This is a triumph. Even a year ago, you might not have needed it. A year ago, I would have uh, gone in there, hola uh, natural, and I'd have looked poorly but I don't know <laughs> and my wife good. has got a picture and she's just showing us on our iPhone it, it's a the... wonderful thing we'll be allowed to put this on the Country Stride yeah, website she, I think it would be good to have it on the website I think it would be yeah, good as well uh, uh, what was the favourite request for toys for uh, 2018 uh, well there was a definite desire for dinosaurs and computer games and then one boy wanted an Everton football kit well, what did you say to him? Were you allowed to express well, your real feelings about I, that? I, having been down to Shepley near Huddersfield and seen the, the founder of the football club of Everton and Liverpool, where he's buried, I was able to tell him, if he's really that keen, he ought to go to Shepley. Right. Well, I'm, I'm sure he's delighted. I'm sure he might have preferred to just get his shirt. But he's now going to Shepley, which is lovely. Um, we're here in Grasmere for our Christmas special, Mark. What have you got planned for us today? Well, I felt it was appropriate to come to Grasmere. It's the seat of so much that's romantic and appreciated on a world stage now. Wordsworth, and Christmas actually works very well with the Wordsworths. So that's Dove Cottage. We'll walk round the lake and arrive at Allen Bank, which again is linked with the Wordsworth, but actually more significantly with Canon Rawnsley. So, so we're going to see Marion Vivers at Dove Cottage, and Elaine Taylor at Allen Bank. There are two guests for today, uh, and we'll be walking, just you, on the walk today, around the old coffin route uh, and back round Grasmere. Yeah, it's nice to be on my own, just occasionally. We've been slightly cursed with the weather. We don't have deep and crisp and even snow, um, and we don't have earth hard as iron, do we? We have a slightly miserable day and quite a lot of rain at the moment. Let's put the waterproofs on and let's head on out. Well, fabulous. This is a a unique occasion for me. I've never, I can't believe it, I've never been to Dove Cottage. And I'm in a special space, this quite compact sitting room of Dove Cottage. Oak panelled walls, brave slate paving on the floor. 
and a lovely warm fire in the grate. This is the beginning of the walk, and to share that moment I have with me Marianne Vivas. Great to see you, Marianne. Now, I gather you're a, an author, write novels and on historical themes. I seem to live mainly in the 18th and early 19th century. I write uh, fiction under the name Anna Dean, and that's mainly murder mysteries, actually. Wow, well, uh, hopefully we'll not get too many murders but in today. That <laughs> hopefully. Anyway, what I'd like to get a bit of a feel for, because this is really very much focused on Dorothy and... William Wordsworth. What drew them to move here? Which was a little bit down market for them, I would imagine. Yes, it, it would have been. Um, they referred to their time living here as a time of plain living but high thinking. Ah. They had been born about 30 miles northwest of here, mm -hmm. up in the town of Cockermouth, but they'd lost their parents when they were quite young. And Dorothy, William and their three brothers had been split up and they'd been sent away to live with relations. Dorothy had left the family home when her mother died, when Dorothy was just six years old. And it was a great sadness. William had gone to school at Hawkshead, of yeah. course. And he'd then gone to Cambridge University, then he travelled abroad. And he and Dorothy had lived for a short time down in the southwest of England. But uh, when they came here, they very much feel that they're coming back to the area they'd loved as they, when they were children, mm. and they're going to have a proper settled home at last. William had seen this house on a walking tour, oh, and right. he wrote to Dorothy about it to ah. say, we might rent it and buy some furniture. And that's how it all started. I'm intrigued by the fact that uh, Dorothy herself was born on Christmas Day. She was, Isn't yes. Isn't that amazing? It is. Um, probably a cause of some sadness, I think, to Dorothy Wordsworth. Because she'd been separated from her family when she was young, mm. I think it, she always felt the loss of those Christmases that she'd not been able to spend particularly with her brothers, who she loved very much. Mm -hmm. uh, she writes in 1805 on, um, on Boxing Day, I yesterday completed my 34th year. A birthday is to everybody a time of serious thought, but more so, I should think, when it happens upon a day of general festivity, and especially on Christmas Day, when all persons, however widely scattered, are in their thoughts gathered together at home. Mm, yep. It's perhaps appropriate that Dorothy and William came here to Dove Cottage for the first time on the 20th of December, just before Christmas. So it's a Christmas homecoming. When they arrive here, um, the house isn't as we see it now, with no. the fire going and cosy and warm. Um, they found, Dorothy writes, no preparation except beds without curtains in the rooms upstairs and a dying spark in the grate of the <laughs> gloomy parlour. So not like our lovely fire here. Mm. They write that we've both caught troublesome colds in our new and almost empty house. Don't we today? Yes. They certainly did. <laughs> but we hope to make it a comfortable dwelling. And of course they did. They, they did. went on to make it a very comfortable home, very right. happy home. How did they live here and who do they welcome here? Well, of course, when they first come, it is just William and his sister who come here. For the first year, though, their brother John spends quite a lot of time with them. He was a sailor and he was um, sort of on shore for most of that year, so he's with them. Um, in 1800, their friend Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the poet, moved up to Keswick. 
um, in order to be near Wordsworth because he and Wordsworth had worked together before they came here. Uh, and Coleridge is visiting Dove Cottage all hours of the day and night. <laughs> Dorothy will write in her journal, Coleridge walked in. <laughs> uh, one memorable occasion, Coleridge walked in with a sack full of books and a big branch of a tree. Um, apparently he'd been attacked by a cow on the way and had to fight it off. Uh, so, actually, <laughs> obviously walking in the Lake District was a little more dangerous in those days. <laughs> How amazing. Um, so he would be coming. Their friend Thomas de Quincey, um, mm. he came in 1807 for the first time. And Thomas de Quincey actually took on the house after they left. Oh, so yes. he is another writer. He's best remembered for writing his Confessions of an English Opium Eater. He was mm. a drug addict. Right. Um, so uh, he took on the house after they left. So there's a sort of creative continuity to this place. Uh, look above the fire on the lintel. There's holly and ivy. Very seasonal. The greenery that we have here is the traditional part of Christmas, and that has been used in, certainly since medieval times. Um, and um, the Wordsworth's friend Robert Southey describes how, um, when he was remembering Christmas 1795, the house all gay with evergreens. Um, but of course, no Christmas tree. Um, no. uh, we believe that probably the first Christmas tree was introduced in Britain in 1800 by Queen Charlotte, uh, King George III's wife. But they didn't become popular until Albert, um, Prince Albert, in the 1840s. Mm -hmm. So it would have been decorations very much like this. Um, and these are these are plants that suggest uh, eternity. That's or? right. I mean, anything that's green during the winter represents cherished and dearly. life during the very barren time of the mm. winter, I suppose. Um, so, in terms of what they would have done, we have. Um, records that they would play cards. Uh -huh. um, Dorothy writes in 1811 that um, she played cards with the children um, as a treat, a treat which is to be repeated on New Year's Day. Uh -huh. I don't know why it's such a treat for the children to play cards, <laughs> but of course Christmas then, as now, was very much a time for parties. Mm -hmm. And I'm always intrigued by uh, Jane Austen um, describes um, Christmas as that festival which requires a more than ordinary share of private balls and large dinner parties to proclaim its importance. <laughs> well, of course, the Wordsworth's life was much more humble than that represents. And in 1805, a very different kind of party to the elaborate balls of Jane Austen's novels um, was held here in, in Dove Cottage. And what happened was um, that the local musician would go around and all the children from the local houses would gather somewhere to dance. Oh. And Dove Cottage being probably the largest house here in the little hamlet of Townend would have been where it all happened. Um, Dorothy writes um, the 26th of December 1805, according to annual custom, our Grasmere fiddler is going his rounds and all the children of the neighbouring houses are assembled in the kitchen to dance. It's a pleasant sound that they make with their little pattering feet upon the stone floor. Half a dozen of them, boys and girls. Uh, you've got some clogs. So we have some little children's clogs here, and we can try and get an idea of the sound... Very authentic. ...that would be made. Yes, the lovely little children's clogs. So...
I'm afraid I can't, I don't know the rhythm of the dance, so I can't <laughs> yeah. get it quite right. We, uh, we uh, imagine country people having a very frugal diet, but this is a special time of year, so what sort of thing would yeah, cheer the, them up? The, this is a special time of year, and um, I think it's very interesting that, of course, we always associate Turkey with Christmas Day now. We do now. That doesn't seem to have been the case for the Wordsworths. I believe at this time turkeys were just starting to come into fashion. Right. But for the Wordsworths, we know that they had beef and plum pudding. So we have Dorothy writes in 1805, John is all alive at the thought. This is John, by the way. This is Wordsworth's little boy. Yes. John is all alive at the thought of two plum puddings which are now rumbling in the pot and a sirloin of beef that is smoking at the fire. And in um, 1811, we find out that the day was kept as usual with roast beef and plum pudding. Perhaps I should mention, um, having just um, mentioned John, Wordsworth's little boy, um, although it was just Wordsworth and his sister who arrived here initially, uh, William got married, of course, in 1802. And by the time he left the house, he and Mary, his wife, had had three children, John, Dora and Thomas. Right, yeah. yeah. So, so they would, it would have been a children's Christmas. Oh, yeah. yes. It came in 1799, so that, too, that period of time... Lots were going on. Where did Dorothy fit in with a wife, as it were, with Mary? <laughs> well, I think one of the most important things about William and Mary's marriage must have been that Dorothy and Mary were already very good friends oh, before William married. They were chums. Um, yes. And this seems to have uh, played a huge part in, in the, the relationship. And do you know, um, in all the diaries and letters that we have, we do not have any record of Dorothy and Mary ever having an argument. They they lived together for over 50 years because Dorothy, of course, always stayed with her brother. She never left. I'm intrigued by this stratosphere of the family because they weren't low society and they were not quite high society, but they merged with the community exceedingly well. Yes, I think they did. I think the Wordsworths regard this as a very humble form of life. Now, we believe Wordsworth might have had um, up to about £60 a year to live on at this time. Most of his income is coming from an inheritance from a friend. Mm. And um, so possibly as much as £60, that would have fluctuated from year to year. Mm. But working men around here were probably earning no more than between £15 and £20 a year. So the Wordsworths do represent a higher level of society. Mm. They employ a local woman as a servant, which oh, it says yeah. a servant was one of the markers of being gentry, of course, oh, at the time. Yes. Uh, so their first servant was called Molly Fisher, and she used to come in for a few hours a day and um, do the washing up and light the fires. And they paid her two shillings a week for doing wow. that. that's a significant amount. Yes, and it was generous, actually. Wordsworth wrote in a letter that we could have had this attendance for 18 pence a week, but we added the sixpence for the sake of the poor woman who was made happy by it. Well, that is, uh, did she get a present on Boxing Day? <laughs> I don't know about getting a present, but she certainly came to the Christmas dinner Mm -hmm. um, on Christmas Day, uh, I think it's 1805 again, um, Dorothy writes um, that Molly's downstairs in the kitchen. They're clearly up in the sitting room that we have. And she writes that Molly's downstairs in the kitchen, but when dinner is served, she and another local man are going to come up and join them wow. for, for dinner. So they have, um, they do have this close contact with people around them.
Interestingly, though, they remain aware of the class difference. Mm. Dorothy is very kind to people. She's very friendly. She chats to, to Molly and she has dinner with her on Christmas Day. But she is aware of the difference. So Dorothy writes about our neighbours of the lower classes and she expects service from them in, in a way. Uh, she writes how they would attend upon us a day and night if we were ill. So she expects to be looked after by these people. And I think it's very interesting if you look at the house in Cockermouth where she and William and their brothers were born, it's a much, much grander house. Mm -hmm. They had been born into a much different way of life and mm. a way of life which is very much like the kind of life we find described in Jane Austen's novels. Quite. So Dorothy, when she was six, um, went to dancing classes. Mm. She opened a children's ball up in Cockermouth. So she had been born into that kind of life. Mm. Living here is a come down for them. And I think it's worth remembering that Dove Cottage is the only small house they ever live in. Mm. Uh, all the other houses that they Alan, live in, Alan um, Bank, Alan Bank uh, the and the Rectory, and then uh, the Mount, and Rydal Mount, which was their last home, uh, are grand houses on a much larger scale to this. Mm. Yes. And incidentally, one of the interesting points about this is that it was during his time that he lived here that William Wordsworth had his most prolific time wow. while he was here. Yes. He, he found writing easier here, it seems, than any of the other places he lived in. Despite the fact that in all his other houses he had a study to retreat to. And this is the one house where he didn't. It's interesting because I think about the outdoors when I come to a place like this. And today is damp and a bit drear. Uh, but of course it can be very cold. Uh, there will have been some pretty cold times when the Wordsworths were here. The winters generally do seem to have been a little colder at the beginning of the 19th century. There was a time called the Little Ice Age, and this sort of began in Elizabethan times and seems to have stretched through to the beginning of the 1800s. And in 1807, uh, while the Wordsworths were living here, there was the worst snowfall for 40 years. Dorothy describes... The roads have been blocked up by snow, and even yet, though it will be a fortnight on Friday since the first great fall, there is no carriageway from Penrith to Keswick. The frost has been intense, and so much snow on the road as to make walking very laborious. Mm -hmm. And William describes the long avenues of snow which have been cut through some places half a mile long and often two or three yards deep. And you can imagine, of course, the, the roads were narrow mm. and walled and they all have filled up very rapidly with the spin. Very with rapidly with snow if you got yeah. any wind behind. So they immediately become mm. impossible. It would have been, and it would have been incredibly hard work. But the Wordsworths, of course, are always very aware of how beautiful it all is, um, <laughs> despite the inconvenience. They're sort of um, detached in their yes, engagement. Yes. <laughs> Dorothy writes about the lake firm, transparent ice the trees for days together covered with sparkling white, as thick as foliage. I never saw hoarfrost so thick. Oh, wow. They're enjoying the, the beauty of it, yeah. despite the severe discomfort that there must have been with such intense cold in a house like this. I'm minded of a story I have at the back of my mind. There was a family from, I don't know, Far Eastdale, 
Yes, the Green family, who uh, they started to walk over from Langdale to Eastdale and they became lost in the snow and the tragedy was that um, their children were sitting by the fire waiting for them to come home and oh, they never arrived. The Wordsworths were very closely involved with the local community in right. um, raising funds to look after the children who'd Isn't been that there. a wonderful thought that they were detached at all strictly? They had no, that connection no. with the general community. Mm. I think it's interesting though, so they feel this uh, involvement with the community so they help out yeah. but one of the ways in which they help is they take one of the little girls in as a servant the class difference is maintained yes um, but, but they help out and they they do feel a responsibility for this little girl there is a, a, a hierarchy but the hierarchy works uh, yes yes <laughs> a kind of benevolent hierarchy maybe that's the best way of explaining it I mean, they were great walkers, yes. even in the snow. I got that and, impression. Um, there was a lovely account on one occasion, William and Dorothy are walking from Grasmere to Ambleside, and William's feet get so cold that they have to stop off at a farm so he can get some straw to stuff his boots with. <laughs> I have this lovely picture of Wordsworth walking along with straw in his boots. Goodness me, it's the last straw, is it? <laughs> the other... A very common activity around here at this time would have been ice skating. Yes. Because the lakes are freezing over and um, unlike now, it seems like just about everybody could get out a pair of skates and go and skate. I mean, I wouldn't know how to, if, no. even if it was frozen. Um, Wordsworth had learned to skate when he was a schoolboy over at the school in Hawkshead. Mm. And he and his classmates used to go skating on asphalt water when it froze. And he writes um, beautiful descriptions of that in his autobiographical poem, The Prelude. Um, All shod with steel, we hissed along the polished ice in games confederate, imitative of the chase. So imagine these little boys chasing each other Absolutely. across the ice. Yeah, there is still a blacksmith in Grasmere. Mm -hmm. And blacksmiths were fundamental to every community. So here, the blacksmith will have had this little side business. Sideline, making skates. Making skates. Yes, yeah. But of course, they didn't always skate on the lake. They had chairs. Yes, yes. I imagine it must have been because for the ladies in their long skirts, it oh. can't have been very easy to skate. And no. um, Dorothy describes... Um, a family scene uh, when the whole family, this is after William's married and has children, in which they all go down to the lake. And it was a keen frost and we had been taking our pleasure upon the ice, all the family. My sister and I sitting upon chairs with the children on our knees, oh. while my brother and Mr Hutchinson in their skates drove us along. <laughs> So, <laughs> so this is Dorothy and Mary sitting on the chairs with the children on their arms. We've got an entourage. You can just imagine it, can't you? I can't say that I've often known uh, Grasmere frozen well enough to skate on in the time I've lived here, which is over 30 years. Wow. So. Well, I'm sorry to leave this fire, but uh, have you got a poem or something reference well, to this? Well, I think the, um, the, we should finish with Thomas de Quincey, the Wordsworth's friend who came to live in Dove Cottage after they moved out in 1808. And he captures that lovely feeling of enjoying the fireside when it's cold outside. He writes, Surely everybody is aware of the divine pleasures which attend a winter fireside. 
candles at four, warm hearth rugs, tea, shutters closed, curtains flowing in ample draperies on the floor, whilst the wind and rain are raging audibly without. Oh, gosh. It's a tragedy to leave this spot, but I've got to go and have a little bit of a stroll. What I can honestly say, Marion, you've been a charming lady and I really have enjoyed this moment. Thank you very much for coming. We'll see you here again. I hope so too. I've reached the top of the first rise. It's quite a steep pull. We got to How Top, the farmstead here beside the, what is in effect a dried up tarn. Now the interesting thing here is the split in the road. We can actually now relate to the chronology of the road system around here. The lower road, uh, which is the A591, where everybody drives along, that's the most recent road. Now this road we've just come up has a bifurcation here, it forks road that goes to the right and then leads down to White Moss. This is from 1770. Now, prior to that, what we call the Coffin Route, which now forks to the left, was the main road. I state the date uh, 1770, but actually the most interesting one, of course, is the modern road that all the buses and the cars go along. And that's from 1835. People driving along today just see this as the main road, but there is a rock just below the outflow of Grasmere Lake called Penny Rock. And a penny was levied on the properties of all the valley. And in 1835, this was blasted out and a road established along the shores of the lake through to Grasmere. Well, you can see why they changed the alignment of the road because that's quite a steep pull up then. But uh, we've come along a level section and to my immediate left is a long, narrow tarn. And most enchantingly of all, there's a heron in there. But normally herons are very sensitive and fly away. But this one, well, it's quite calm. It's obviously used to people coming this way. Uh, ahead of me by some cottages, there's a great oak tree covered in lichen and mosses. This is the landscape of trees. You've got nab scar with a bit of sunlight hitting the brow ahead of us, great nose of a ridge. Well, we got to a point here where the path actually splits, a bit of a track goes downhill, but we'll keep going forward. And would you believe it, there's a, a robin sitting on top of the signpost indicating down to white moss. Now, below me here is Bainrig Wood. And uh, in Wordsworth's time, the lower road didn't exist, as I mentioned, and it was just a footpath. Uh, and there was talk of felling that ancient oak wood. Famous even to this day for its bluebells, Wordsworth was very aggrieved and was very vociferous in resisting the whole idea of that woodland being felled. And thank goodness he was. Uh, he was a great voice in the area. People listened to him and influenced the fact that it didn't get cut down. So Bain Rig, which means the straight ridge, isn't dire straits, the woodland is still there. And that's sustained this wonderful verdant setting here. I passed Dunnebeck House 
and the tarmac is gone and we're onto a hardcore surface track. And we've come to the crossing of Dunabek, coming steeply down the side of Navscar. Now, we're on the Corpse Road, or the very, very old road. And as Alan Cleaver alluded to in episode five about Corpse Roads, when we walked from Estelle to Wasdale Head, these were significant routes from Chapel of Eases and communities to significant sacred places here People actually came from Ambleside to Grasmere. St Oswald's at Grasmere was more significant religious centre. People also came over from Langdale, over the hunting style pass to Grasmere. Grasmere was a great focus for burial. So this route was the major route. Relating to that is this sort of myth that Alan Cleaver pointed out about coffin stones or resting stones. We passed one just before we got to how Chop itself, at the top of the steep rise from Dove Cottage. There are other instances of stones that have always been called resting stones. Well, if you've got a coffin on your shoulder, damn me, you'll put it down wherever you can. You don't put it down at a coffin stone. So it's just one of those things that there are a lot of large stones around here. The ghosts of the past carry you along this journey of people who've lived in this valley for hundreds of years. Well, I've just passed Brockstone Cottage, where we're just below it in effect here, where the path splits, and uh, I've passed a few people who seem to really be enjoying it, even the squally weather that we've got. This is such a scenic walk. In fact, it's probably one of the most popular paths in the lakes. It's just so easy to do and so scenic. Uh, Brockstone Cottage, you've got a holly tree just above a little waterfall below it, which is quite enchanting, and the view you can see through the trees and the sunlight is bursting on the lake. And at uh, this point, with the moss-covered walls to my left, I'm just about to branch from the popular way down a much looser track down towards White Moss. It's a lovely spot. Well, we've come down the narrow track from Brockstone Cottage and um, past a beautiful waterfall at the bottom of Dunabek, cross the main road and come through White Moss, very popular walking environment. There's lots of people here. And I've come across the River Rothy, a great volume of water coming out of Grasmere Lake. So much volume to it that it's spilling out to the sides, making new channels. So although it's not a huge body of water, it's still nonetheless pretty substantial and is a reminder of the fact that White Moss always was a boggy environment. Creating the Valley Road was always a substantial undertaking. A fabulous little section of path right tight above the Rothy. Uh, it's a completely new path. I've never been along this little section before, very intimate to the river, it's fabulous. And it's interesting to think this is all part of Luffrig Fell, and Wainwright mentioned that even in his day there was more footpaths on Luffrig than any other fell per square mile. They're even evolving more, so it just shows this is a lovely popular location that people get full value from coming to see. I'm enjoying it immensely today. With the energy in the river itself and the diversity of trees, 
I almost would describe this as a Scottish landscape. Fabulous. We've just come into the outflow of Grasmere uh, and a group of half a dozen canoeists were all laughter going downstream and they look really excited. Come to the lake itself and boy, the sun just burst out and cast an enormous rainbow over the island in the middle, which I understand the National Trust have recently acquired, and the movement of the light, there's a new rainbow come. It sort of came, it went, the light, and it's just dancing over the summit of Silver Howe, which as a summit has the most amazing view down on the Grasmere Vale. And the light now, I can see it's just moving across the lower slopes of Helm Crag. The famous lion and the lamb, or the habitzer as Wainwright called it, which as you come down, Dunmail Rays is such a feature, it's drizzling, but that just adds to the magic. Completed the lakeside section, I've come up the track, now we meet the Red Bank Road and about 150 yards down to the right, we'll pass the end of the other coffin route, coming over hunting style from chapel style in Great Langdale. So the deceased were brought from Great Langdale to Grasmere, just as they were from Rydal and Ambleside to Grasmere on the other coffin route. And we'll now wander along the road to get to Allen Bank, which has been quite a feature of the view as we've looked up the head of the lake from the lakeside. Well, I've completed the walk. It's been a bit damp, but uh, it's great to come up the carriage drive to arrive at Allen Bank. And uh, I've come inside and there's carols, choirs singing, instrumentalists performing very seasonal music. And there's people there absolutely captivated and no wonder. I've come upstairs and I'm in the company of Elaine Taylor, who uh, is very knowledgeable about this place. Could you describe this view to me, Elaine? Okay, well, uh, we're on the first floor looking across to Grasmere Water and uh, further away to Luffrig. And uh, one of Wurzwa's favourite walking routes would have been up Red Bank and via Luffrig back to Rydal in olden days. And we have uh, quite a good view, even though the mists are rising now, over Grasmere Water to Grasmere Island. And Grasmere Island was one of uh, Wordsworth's favourite picnic spots in the summertime. Grasmere Island is also quite pivotal, really, in the foundations of the National Trust. Um, Hardwick Ronsley, who was the last owner of Allen Bank and bequeathed the house and grounds to the nation, well, he was inspired to co-found the National Trust when he saw places of beauty like Grasmere Island and the Falls of Lodor and the top of Snowdon all passing into private hands. Mm -hmm. And very recently... The island itself was left to the National Trust by a lady called Miss Mack, who must have heard the story of uh, Ronsley and that inspiration. Uh, but uh, even though it's not a fair day, it is a magnificent view across the Luffrig and the waters. You can see the Herdwick sheep grazing in the field there. And if you're very lucky, you might spot a little russet red squirrel running past the house to get to the knot feeders on the trees. You are gifted with red squirrels, you've had to work hard to sustain them, but many people come here for the many stories that they sense this house is 
associated with Wordsworth. And when did he come here? Well, the Wordsworths, uh, their family and their friends, they came here in the spring of 1808 from Dove Cottage. That's a town end, which was now too small for uh, William and Mary and their growing family. And they moved here in the spring um, of 1808 and stayed here until 1811. Mm -hmm. Actually, there were two reasons why the Wordsworths moved here. The first, of course, their family was growing mm -hmm. and Dove Cottage was just too small, but also they decided to rent a house that initially they didn't particularly care for uh, because they needed more room for their friends, Samuel ah. Taylor Coleridge, who had separated from his wife, Sarah. And this then was a brand new six-bedroomed house that they rented from a merchant and attorney from Liverpool, called John Gregory Crump. Crump? Not many people have heard of him, but they've certainly heard of his first tenant. And in that three years that he was here, what did he strictly do? Well, we know that he worked on his excursion here, and he wrote a political pamphlet called The Convention at Sintra. Uh, this was at the height of the Napoleonic Wars, and it was a reaction to how the Portuguese and Spanish were dealt with during the war. But the most significant document that he wrote was an introduction uh, to um, select views in Cumberland and Westmoreland and Lancashire, which uh, inevitably became the guide to the district of the lakes and the north of England. And one of the most significant things he said in that, in this guide for persons of taste, was that lakes in the north of England testify that they deem the district a sort of national property in which every man has a right and interest who has an eye to perceive and a heart to enjoy. No wonder he became such an inspiration to Hardwick Bronsley. Absolutely. And that is almost the first reference to it being a district. Exactly. In 1835, that fifth edition, he does call it the Lake District. The Lake District, yes. That's really where it begins. Definition of a district, yes. Uh -huh. yes. Let's just think just momentarily back to the whole notion of Christmas here. The practicalities of a Christmas meal would have been quite a challenge, certainly for the ladies and the servants of the house, given that none of the fires would draw properly. The least worst room to light the fire would have been in the study, where they did all the washing and, and cooking and heating. That was in Wordsworth's study on the ground floor because the range in the kitchen was unusable. They also had a very busy house here. There were never just the Wordsworths, there would have been their family and friends. Dorothy writes that there are 13 of us at weekends. Wow. Uh, and went additional two when you got to Coleridge's boys, Derwent and Hartley, so that's 15 altogether in a six-bedroomed house. So uh, quite a busy household here. But Christmas time as a whole in the Lake District, certainly as recorded in the late 19th century by Hardwick Ronsley, was a time when uh, all work perhaps ceased to be, certainly on Christmas Day, and not safe to be done perhaps in a desultory manner until well into the new year. And... Um, it was dying out towards Ronsey's day, but certainly Wordsworth would have perhaps heard of the Merry Neats or Merry Nights when uh, folk would go to the nearest public house and uh, there would be a fiddler there and a collection made for him and everybody would, in payment to the host or hostess, um, everybody drank as much as they cared to do in the cause of the house, really. The interesting thing is a staple drink recorded was this um, drink called Pau Saudi. Which, yes, it's a concoction, a cauldron of spiced ale or milk, spiced uh, and mixed with hot ale or spirits and sweetened with sugar and filled with sippets of bread, a sort of glorified uh, bread and milk pudding, which would be served out to the guests. It weren't really nights of riot or excess, but it was an opportunity for folk of all types 
the master and mistress would meet with the servants at the house and everyone would get together in a very frank and open and informal manner for a good crack and a dance or a game of whist. Games of whist, if the weather was bad, would probably last for about 48 hours by all accounts. <laughs> and every farmhouse in the Vale would be sort of sweet with the oven's breath. They would have this thing called standing pie, which was a sort of glorified pork pie in appearance, and it was made with raisins and currants and suet and meat and candied peel and sugar and nutmeg and spice, and then there were mince pies and currant pasties and spice cakes. Ronzi himself, as the young vicar obviously records, to refuse to partake of these dainties when offered is looked upon almost as a personal insult to the good name of the house and the hostess. <laughs> and to allow a mince pie to remain uneaten after candle mass is by the nature of a sin. It's like not eating a sheep's eye to a Bedouin. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> Goodness me. So um, as they, the words was when they lived here were simple folk. William married a very practical uh, Yorkshire farm lass really a very sensible better part of a, an all farm body and she and her sister would have worked with the servants of the house to keep well they had kept a cow and they had two pigs and they baked their own bread and they did their own washings they were very practical ladies really mm. from Wordsworth through to Ronsey and Ronsey represents such a colossal transformation in our appreciation and national ownership of this landscape Certainly, he was known even before the National Trust was founded as a defender of the lakes because his huge passion really was in preserving the Lake District landscape for future generations to enjoy and also for maintaining access to footpaths. He, that's how he got to know Octavia Hill and Sir Robert Hunter because they were all working for the preservation of the commons and the footpaths. He particularly was involved with the Lake District Defence Society in the campaign to preserve the footpaths which access Latrig, and that's before the Trust was founded. Another influence, of course, was on Beatrix Potter, mm. not only as a published author, in, in fact, that he introduced her to Warren, uh, but also in what she did to buy up farms and, and consolidate them and to care for the landscape. She and her husband left us such a vast legacy to the National Trust, and it was through that influential friendship. In fact, her father was one of the first life members of the National Trust. Fabulous. The Ronsleys and the Potters were great friends. It's been a delight to listen to the musicians downstairs and the carols uh, and the harp and guitarists. It's magic music. This is contemporary, but it's also a tradition as well that we can trace back to Wordsworth's time. There is, of course, that lovely poem by Wordsworth called the uh, Christmas Minstrelsy. I just wondered whether I could give you a few lines from that, how Wordsworth describes to his brother Christopher that experience of the merry night and the minstrels that played to local villagers. Please do. The minstrels played their Christmas tune tonight beneath my cottage eaves, while smitten by a lofty moon, the encircling laurels, thick with leaves, gave back a rich and dazzling sheen that overpowered their natural green. Through hill and valley, every breeze had sunk to rest with folded wings. Keen was the air, but could not freeze, nor check the music of the strings. So stout and hardy were the band, that scraped the chords with strenuous hand. And who but listened till was paid? Respect to every inmate's claim, the greeting given, the music played, in honour of each household name. Julie pronounced with lusty call and Merry Christmas wish to all.
So here we are at the Swan at Grasmere, and we have to say a big thanks to the Swan because we asked them, well, we didn't even ask them to turn down the music. They voluntarily turned down the music so that we could record here. So big thanks and lovely day, Mark. That was, I'm full of Christmas cheer now. We had two wonderful narrators who really were immersed in their subjects and loved Wordsworth, loved Canon Rawlsley. And although it's been a dull day, we got a bit damp, we've come away with a warm feeling. Yes, the water was slightly drizzly, wasn't it? But there was a benefit to that with the waterfalls um, oh, in particular. Yeah. And the Rothay there overspilling its banks. There's a lot of water around at the moment. Yeah, we saw some canoeists taking full advantage of the uh, animated water. In terms of highlights for me, it was finding out about the parties and, and hearing the sounds of the little children's clogs on the floor there. That was lovely, wasn't it? Oh, yes. Yes, uh, Marion really had the, the magic of the whole Wordsworth lifestyle the people that they related to, uh, and Christmas, Dorothy's birthday was Christmas Day. Christmassy links all over the place. What didn't sound very appealing to me was the strange alcoholic broth that had bread in it. Oh, these merry meats. I mean, the merry meats sounded great, but uh, I don't think I'd like to have drunk too much of the... Uh, <laughs> well, it, it's something you would only have once a year, I think. Yes, well, And spend quite the rest right of the year too. cleansing yourself. Yes, the equivalent of sprouts. <laughs> We're coming to the close of country stride for 2018 which is of course our first year of recording what have you got planned for us for 2019 oh gosh i'm spoilt we live in the most wonderful county and now we've got ourselves into stride i certainly want to get into the mountains again because i love being in the mountains you know me so terry abraham's on my list early on in for january on hell velin hell velin he's completing his trilogy of films and we will be going up Helvellyn with Terry at some point in Jan, we hope, well, weather dependent. A bit of housekeeping as well, reminder that you can download any of our episodes at www.countrystride.co.uk. Uh, we're on Twitter, Mark? Absolutely. Uh, we've got a few followers already, so that's a good start. And we're on Facebook as well, so... Remind us the addresses. At Countrystride1. We will have a, a musical playout in a few moments from the Cumbrian duo who were playing so well in Allen Bank this afternoon at their Christmas festivities. For us, all there is now is to say to our listeners, Happy Christmas, and we look forward to hearing from you again in 2019. Thank you for listening. So I'm here now with Ed Heslam, who's one half of the Cumbrian duo, and they're going to play us out with a tune called Hands Up Through the Wood. This was a tune that was played across Cumbria over the 12 days of Christmas uh, in times gone by. Musicians would go around the locality playing this to each household, and in fact they'd play it to every person in the household, so they might play it lots and lots of times over. And for that they would receive money. And uh, William Irwin, who was a violinist based in Elterwater, records in his diary that one year he earned £3.11 shillings from just playing that tune, which is an extraordinary amount of money when you consider that at that time an agricultural worker was only earning two shillings perhaps a day, top whack two, two and six a day. Sounds fabulous. Ed, thank you very much and thanks for playing us out on our Christmas Country Stride podcast. Thank you.